0: Advent. Good morning, friends. I'm Taylor. I'm a pastor here, and it's really good to be here with you this morning, as always, as almost always. I'm not always here, but I usually am, so it's good to be here. Look, before I never do this, I rarely, rarely, I don't know that I've ever have, but I did just want to mention just for a moment, um, I, because I don't like to politicize the pulpit, but I, I believe that, you know, the death of uh, George H. W. Bush uh, Friday, sort of beyond politics, um we're we're about the kingdom of God here and we care about politics but that's not what I preach. Um but I just want to say he was he was he was a president but he was also a patriot and uh I in a lot of the stuff that was said of him one thing and he's a, a son of Houston too. So I think um what the oldest president uh, that was with that in 94 the oldest president maybe to pass. So um I heard it said of him he was a man of quiet dignity. And those two words really stuck with me. And um, I wish that we had more of that today. Uh, not just in our political scene. It's hard to even imagine that being said of anyone on either side right now. It's anything but that um, in our discourse, but also in our discourse and treatment of one another. Um, so, but our hope isn't in the state. Our hope is in something that, uh, that transcends that and that affects that, that affects actually everything. And that's going to be around long after America um, passes. And so, um, and that's kind of a segue into the text, the beautiful text that Nathaniel read for us this morning, um, the announcement of John, who will be a way maker for the Messiah. Um, Advent means it's Latin, and it just means arrival or coming. And whose arrival is it? Does it signal? God's. That's right. Almost incredibly like Nathaniel kept saying, could it be that God himself has come among us? And it took his people a while to process this. Mary, perhaps, was the one who knew it most because of what happened to her. Um, but it, it announces the fact that God, after a long silence, and after centuries and centuries of looking for Messiah and waiting for him, God has come to, to live with his people. And he's come. None of, I told my daughter this yesterday. It came up somehow. I said, you, weren't cho- you didn't cho- choose to be born. None of us did. And, and neither, of course, did we choose the way in which we were going to be born. But if, if I could have, I would have chosen that it be comfortable. God got to choose. And he chose to be born in a feed trough for horses and cattle. And this characterized his life and it characterized his ministry. Um, because he entered our poverty and our brokenness and our darkness. That was why he came. So we're going to be in the next five weeks as we, as we look at and plow into just Luke chapter 1. We're just going to be in Luke chapter 1. We're not going to preach through the book, which is why I've chosen for us not to read verses 1 through 4, which kind of introduce both Luke and Acts. Luke wrote both Luke and the book of Acts. He actually he actually contributed. He's the largest contributor to the New Testament, little known fact, even more than Paul. He, Luke and Acts combined is more verbiage than any other author. Um, so he makes this huge contribution, gives us a picture of Messiah and his coming and then the church after him. Um, but we're just going to look at in Advent at ch- in December here at chapter 1. We're going to walk through it together, and then we're going to pivot most likely in January to go into Genesis, go back to the beginning. So um, a little bit of context, though, as we, as we jump into Advent um, and into, and into this, uh, this text here, John starts off by talking about how this happened, what in the days, verse 5, in the days of Herod. In the days of Herod. Um, this would have been Herod the Great, who reigned from 37 to 4 BC. Um, and so we, this positions us at the end of 400 years of divine silence. God's been silent um, for four centuries. So for us, the equivalent would be if God hadn't spoken to us at all. We were used to God speaking through prophets, sending prophets. He'd given us his law. He was our God. But then he went silent since, since right around Jamestown. And then here comes this seeming and sure word that is a sort of fulfillment of the last promise that he gave in Malachi 4, the very last thing he says in the Old Testament. Um, and we'll get to that. So there's a ton of anticipation here. Um, I just want to touch on a few things as far as setting the table and, and looking at the context here of Zechariah. Um, as he receives this word from Gabriel, God's messenger. So one of the things that we notice is that he's married, he's older, his wife is Elizabeth, his name is Zachariah. He's a priest. Um, This couple's barren. They've never had a child. They've wanted a child. The last thing Nathaniel read, the last thing that um, Elizabeth says once she's five, she probably hides herself for five months because she's guarding this child and she would have worn robes and and some people wouldn't have been able to tell until month five that she was pregnant. She wanted to make sure this thing was gonna stick. And she, was, she, she says um, that the Lord has taken away my, my reproach or my shame. And so she felt shame. But the fact is that we are told right up front, this couple walked blamelessly or righteously. It's not that they were sinless, but they were faithful to God. They trusted in his promises. They waited on him. They looked to him. Um, so this was not, this withholding of a child, something that seemed like it could have been punishment from the Lord, actually wasn't at all. It was, it was for greater good. So I just wanna say, I mean, this is not the point of the sermon, but it's here, that, man, we need to press into that and hold on to that as a people, that when we are going through dark times, first of all, we don't desperately don't jump to, what have I done? God, it could well be that God is withholding, that God is putting you through this time for a greater plan that will bring greater glory. And that's exactly, exactly what he does here. Um, so Zechariah, he's a priest, so from the tribe of Levi, they were dedicated to be priests. There were 24 at this time, 24 divisions of priests, thousands of priests that ministered in Jerusalem at the temple. In um, each of those, they were, they were, those 24 divisions, each division served twice a year, adding up to, of course, 48 weeks. And then three times a year, they all came together and served for the three big festivals. Okay, so that adds up to a year. So this is, his lot is drawn. It happens to be his time of the 24 divisions to serve. And there were so many priests that either it would to be chosen to go into the actual temple, not just in the temple precincts, and to offer incense in the holy place, right in front of the curtain that divides you from the most holy place, where only the high priest, one guy of the priestly tribe, goes once a year to atone for the sins right there at the Ark of the Covenant for the entire nation of Israel, for all God's people. Um, Some commentators think this would have happened max once or twice in a lifetime for a priest, but others say, Because of the numbers, it just likely you're not going to get to do this at all. So this would have been the biggest day, one commentator says, of his life. To get in, to go into the Holy of Holies, to stand right to, excuse me, the holy place where you have the bread and the incense, okay, and the lamp, and that's it. And everything is gilded. It feels like you're in heaven. You're in God's presence, as it were, closer to him. And uh, you're offering incense up, okay? And he's doing that on, on behalf of the people. And so this is his huge Day And right here, Gabriel shows up, what? Right side, it says, of the incense, where the incense is being offered. Why is that detail offered? It adds nothing to the plot. Again, just like I said, I think last week, where Peter sees Jesus on the shore, John leans over, it's the resurrected Christ. So he looks different. They're still confused because he's been crucified and there's rumors of his being alive again. And John leans over and says, it's the Lord. What does Peter do? He puts on his coat. They've been fishing all night. He's been stripped down for work. He's sweaty. He puts on his coat and he jumps in the water and he swims to shore before the boat can get there. He gets there to meet with Jesus. Why is that included? Just because it happened. That's the only reason. Um, same here. Gabriel shows up to the right of the altar of incense and as with every angelic encounter, uh, Zachariah, he's filled with, with holy dread. This creature is unbelievable and he's, he's shaking okay um so this is a typical old testament well i know we're in the new testament but this is the transition point right but where the offer after silence um of god of of someone who has been barren an older woman um, a promise to her saying you will have a son it's going to be god's grace it's going to be he who does it this is an old testament type scene all the way it happened um with Sarai, she had Isaac, it happened with Rebecca, she had Esau and Jacob, it happened with Rachel, she had Joseph and Benjamin, um, and it happened with Hannah, uh, she had Samuel, and it happened with Samson's mom. So it happens over and over again, and it le- it's, a, it's a thing that Israel, as God's people, holds on to. It's a promise that God is going to continue to keep his promises. So the, the name John, that's the name that's given, and names in the Old Testament and names in the Bible typically mean something significant, but they always do when God says, name the child this. And it means God has been gracious in Hebrew, and grace is God's unearned favor. So this isn't, hey, you've been good, well done, you've earned this. It's that my people don't deserve treatment, uh, good treatment from me, uh, a shower of blessing, my face, a relationship with me, but that's exactly what I'm going to give them. And so his name is going to signify that when I bring people to myself, it's not deserved through them. It's going to be earned through someone else. And that's, that's the person that John is going to be trumpeting. It's going to be earned by Messiah who's gonna come and live in our place and die in our place. So that, that, but also prayer in verse 13, your prayer has been heard. So John means God has been gracious. Prayer means um, a, a prayer for favor or grace. It's a cognate, techanan. So you can hear that same So it brings up, your prayer has been heard, and then your prayer means basically the same thing as John's name. All commentators are like, was he in the, he's old, and yet he doubted when the promise came true that he was actually going to get a son. Was Was he in the temple, supposed to be praying for Israel? He's asking for a son? And some commentators say, no, no, he wouldn't have done something that prosaic. Actually, I think that the text is pretty clear. He had been asking for a son. But I also, I don't think that it's exclusive. He was also... The son was going to be the harbinger of grace to all of Israel. Okay, so it's a twofer. He's going to get a son, and as he prays for the restoration of his people and for God to come and speak to his people to give them a word and to restore relationship, John is going to be the waymaker to that person that's going to do that. And so um, one commentator says this, it's a hopeful assertion, long delay does not mean prayers are rejected. John was super old, so old that he couldn't believe it when he received the prayer, the request he'd been asking for, but um, he gets it. And so I just want to say to you, keep praying. It's what we're enjoined to do by our Messiah. It's what we're enjoined to do. Keep praying, keep asking. And this is him exercising his free will completely. So this is, if you struggle with like free will and uh, our responsibility and God's sovereignty, this is a great instance of that, the out, the outlay of that. So he is praying, praying, praying for a son and God answers him. And in answering him, he fulfills the last word that he gave to his people to the T. John is a fulfillment of Malachi chapter four. He will come as Elijah in the spirit and power of Elijah to bring restoration and to announce the coming of one who brings, who restores people to God and people to one another. Okay. So, um, John is exerc- I mean, excuse me. Zachariah is exercising his free will, and also at the same time, God is accomplishing through that exercise his his perfect will and his sovereign plan. Um, so let me jump into that's that's some context. Let me jump into the main load of of what I feel like um, we need to get out of this out of this word this morning, and that's that God's word restores. God's word restores, and we're just going to spend the rest of our time here. Um, so. When he, uh, John is going to be someone who is going to resemble in almost every way the Old Testament sort of prophet premier, Elijah, Elijah, and in Elijah's day, so this carries a lot of sort of freight with it, in Elijah's day, Elijah was a prophet who was a spokesman for God in a time of great wickedness of God's people, Ahab, Jezebel, so the King Ahab, an Israelite, married Jezebel, a Canaanite um, queen, and filled the land with, false false prophets, with the idol of Baal, false god was worshiped. And um, Elijah felt like he was alone. And it was a time of great sort of outward, obvious wickedness, which is interesting because since then, hundreds of years have passed. And in this silence, uh, the people have become extremely nationalistic, zealous, and actually punctilious law followers. So you have the Pharisees, you have the zealots, you have the Essenes. You have this, there's all, everywhere you go, there are these big jars for washing. People are constantly, they even wash their couches before they sit on them sometimes. I mean, they tithe, they don't just tithe their money that they get their paycheck. They tithe the um. They tithe the the spices that they use in cooking. Okay, I'm gonna use cumin today for this meal. I'm gonna take a 10th of that and give that to God. Can you imagine? So they are punctiliously keeping the law, but God is basically saying, look, you can be, you can, you can be far from God in your irreligiousness. Like the prodigal son who just went away and just lived profligately. You can be falling down dead drunk and and uh, having all kinds of affairs and all sorts of stuff where you know and everyone else knows you're in sin. But you can also, you can also be far from God in your religiousness, the second son in the prodigal son story. Okay? You can basically feel like you're slaving away for God, keeping the rules and that he owes you. Okay? And that's what the second son felt like. Um, but, if we, if we feel like what God has basically asked us to do is just to keep a bunch of rules, we are also very far from God. because That's not what he wants. He wants relationship. And something deep has to be restored and corrected um, for that to happen. And so basically, this prophecy, the fact that John is coming in the spirit and power of Elijah says a bunch of things, but one of the things it says is Israel is still far from God. And we can't make that right. And so guess what? God, John is a harbinger of someone who is actually going to be It's going to be God coming down to do what we can. And that's the gospel. And that's what Advent means. And so that's what we're stepping into. Um, That's what we're stepping into today. So let's look at, in particular, at verses 16 and 17. This is is the main course of, of what Gabriel tells to John. He says, John will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, Verse seventeen, And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So what is he gonna do? He's gonna be a prophet who proclaims restoration. God is going to restore people uh, to him, his people, and to one another, okay? Um, I was getting a haircut this week and you know, you chat. About stuff, you try to you try to turn it into meaningful chat. Sometimes it's it's just chitter chatter, and that's fine. But it actually took a dive into something uh, quite profound this week. And she said at one point, halfway through the haircut, she said, sorry, talking about her father, and just said, "Why, why are we estranged in our relationships? Why, why is there that distance? Why is there that brokenness? It seems like with every, almost every relationship, but certainly with the most important ones." there's brokenness and there's estrangement and we began to talk and we both agreed that it's deeper than you can try to pin it on a father or a job or a spouse or a boyfriend or girlfriend or a political party or you just good on the list but in the end it's it's deeper than that it's it's me it's you we are broken we are self-centered we are curved in on ourselves and create all of creation has suffered the consequences so um We are estranged. We are, as I said last week, we're just far from home. We are not where we are made to be. We're wandering. We are aliens. And we feel that inside of us, that angst, you know, we, and we see it playing out in the world around us, don't we? Neighborhoods, but on the global scale, too. Um, And so the prophecy, this, this word that's given is a direct, as I've said, prophecy of the last thing God speaks to his people in Malachi 4. Here here are those words from Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. Spoken, again, Jamestown in in our world, 400 years previously. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. Notice how that last bit's left out by the angel Gabriel. We'll get to that. But... I, I, I've read a biography or two of, of John Calvin, the, the great reformer, lived 500 years ago or so. And one of the things I remember reading is he was in Geneva for most of his preaching career, and he left Geneva. It was really hard in a lot of ways, and he, he left because of essentially the city kind of pushed him out, and he, or he felt unwanted, or both. And he left for over two years. And he was in the habit of just preaching through books. He, I, I read or heard somewhere that he, even, he didn't even take a break for Christmas, Easter, certainly didn't follow a calendar. He just went, his rule was just preach, expository preaching straight through the scripture. No theme, no theme stuff. Um, and so he was like in Matthew 22, leave Geneva for two years, comes back two plus years later, gets up in the pulpit. It's not a, hey, it's so good to be back. It's just the next verse. Matthew 22, chapter 1, I mean, 22, verse 1. Literally, he picks up right where he leaves off. And that is exactly what God does here. It's exactly what God does here, except it hadn't been two years, it's been 400 years. Listen, friend, God's word will come to pass. God's word will be accomplished. Don't hang your hat on your circumstances or the person in front of you. Look to God's word. Full of his promises was her yes and amen in Jesus Christ. They will come to pass. And it might not seem like it's according to your timetable, and it probably won't be. But his timing is perfect, and his word is sure. And it's being fulfilled here four centuries later. Not a moment too soon, not a moment too late. Okay? And so it begins. There's just so much anticipation packed in to this moment with Zechariah here. Um, in, a little bit more on Malachi. In Malachi, one chapter earlier, so it ends in chapter four, chapter three, verse 12, talks about how he's gonna make of his rebellious people through this Messiah that's gonna come a land of delight, okay? Eretz okay. hafetz in the Hebrew, a land of just rejoicing and delight. It's, a, it's garden paradisal language. He's gonna make of this rebellious people a people what well, the next thing that said, 4 verse 4, Malachi 4 verse 4, two verses before the end of Malachi, is that they're going to, he says, keep that law. Remember the law of Moses. Keep the commands, the words I've given you. They're the key to life, okay? Um, and so what we see here is paradise, keep the law of God, and then I'm going to send someone who, instead of giving you the judgment you deserve, is going to restore all things, fathers to their children and you to me. Okay, so what, I, what am I saying here? Malachi is pointing us to the coming of Messiah. He's not just going to make things okay between, each other, between us, okay, horizontal relationships. And even, yes, he's gonna make things right and he's gonna bring peace and restoration between God and us and then the horizontal as well. But it actually, he's going to basically take us, it's a, cre- a recreational language. He's going to take us back. He's going to restore things as far as the curse is found because of our first father's disobedience. He's going to be a second Adam who's going to bring about a new world order as I preached on a few weeks ago from Matthew 28, okay? He's going to restore relationship and as those relationships, as this one is restored vertically, then these are restored within families and within the church family and as we go forth as a new people restored with God and with one another, the culture is going to be changed, and his kingdom is going to go forth, and creation is going to be renewed, in part now and fully when he comes back. That's all embedded in this text. So it's bigger, though it's not smaller, than interpersonal relationships. It's cosmic in scope. It's total creation. Restoring fathers to children, though, is the seed, and the oak tree is the restoration of all things. Okay? Um, But I want to press in a little more to this word. The Hebrew in Malachi 4 actually says fathers and sons. I will restore the hearts of fathers to their children or to their sons and of sons to their fathers. Okay. And the word there in the Hebrew can mean sons, banim, can mean children. Okay. Spanish works the same way. Um, But it does mean, it does mean sons here. And actually here in Luke, one time it says sons and the other it says tekna or children. Okay. So why not? That seems weird, right? The hearts of fathers, it seems like a strange, like you're cherry picking. Why, why would you characterize a full restoration as I'm going to restore fathers to their sons or to their children? Why not mothers, daughters? Why not wives and husbands? Because I just want to just for a second posit this because the relationship between a father and a son is the most fundamental relationship in the universe. Think about that. There was a time, if I can use that word, in which God was not creator. But there was a time... In eternity past, he's always existed. He's always been. He's the only uncreated being. He's the necessary being. There is a time eternal in which God was not, there was nothing but God and he was complete and happy. There was no lack in him because he's Father, Son, and Spirit, loving each person, loving the other, serving the other, blissful um, together. But then when he made all things, he made them good and then he made man and woman. Okay? And, and, but what am I saying? Sorry, back up. God, there was a time in which God wasn't creator. But there's never been a time, never, if I can use that word again, time, before time, in which there was not a father loving a son. And in which there was not a son loving a father. That is who God is. And some theologians even say the love between father and son and the Godhead is the, is, the, is the Trinity. He's an expression, as it were. Although all persons are eternal and all persons are God. That's a controversial one, so... Um, Don't record me. Oh, wait, we're being recorded. Um, But father and son, that relationship, there's nothing more fundamental in the universe. That is who God is. So when he made us, he made us as to be his children in relationship with him, and he called Adam his son, to love him, to be loved by him, and for everything Adam did to be an outflowing of that love, and to make images of God children, and to place them throughout the world who would also love each other and love God. That's what this whole thing's about, okay. And so, when God um, uses this language and says, "I'm going to restore the relationship between father and son or father and children," again, what is He doing? He's going back and He's saying, "I'm going to, I'm going to, rest- I'm going to put it back to where, to where it was supposed to be, through my own son, and through Him, I'm going to make you sons and daughters once more, and through that." I am going to restore all things and you will have dominion because he will have dominion, but not in the way that we expected. Not in the way that we expected. Um, recall the frightening destruction bit that I sort of alluded to at the end of that word um, from Malachi. You know, So basically, run to him, listen to him, listen to this prophet that is the harbinger of Messiah, lest I strike the land with the curse of utter destruction. Um, that tells us something about what Messiah is going to come do and how he's going to bring restoration interpersonally and then to all things. Because he is going to, he is going to fulfill that word too. He's going to, what is he going to do? He's going to take the destruction that our sin and rebellion and evil and selfishness have have wreaked upon creation and upon one another and the destruction that we have done to each other and continue to do He's going to take that into himself, okay? He's going to enter as God entering into our world as a man. He's going to be born, he chose to be born, as I said earlier at the beginning of the sermon, in a feed trough. He chose to be born poor. He chose to wear, to be born into what we'd made of the world, to be rejected. If somebody asked the other day, why... You know, it's, it's an age-old question. It's a good question. Why didn't God come? And I think, I think maybe it was in the synagogue. I was teaching in a synagogue just this week, and one of them said, why didn't he make it more obvious that if he was prophesying about Jesus, 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 why didn't we, we, he make it more obvious, sort of trumpets blaring, when he came? And the idea is if he'd made it that obvious, he never would have been crucified. Never. We would have hit our faces and said, oh, King, here you are. He, was, he took poverty and rejection upon himself because that was his mission he was absorbing the curse and the destruction you and i have earned and so through him we get yohanan we get the grace of god unearned favor through him he who has taken our curse that we deserve upon himself and given us the blessing of being a son and it's only found in christ it's only found in Christ. Another question that was asked in the synagogue was why, uh, if this is, I can't remember exactly, but it was something to the effect of, God, can't he, if he's God, and indeed he is, what, can't he just reconcile us to himself? I said, yes, indeed, he has done that and offered that through the person of his son. What more can he do? I think that's a scripture somewhere in the New Testament. What more can he do than what he has done? By giving us his own son, by coming himself and taking our darkness into him, wearing it like a cloak in this life. And then on the cross, actually, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians becoming that darkness and that sin and that rebellion literally became that. And notice, so he who would reconcile us to God and to each other had to be What? Estranged. He had to take on what we've earned. He had to be estranged from his father. Notice on the cross, one of the, one of the things he says is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, in the Aramaic, from his very mouth. Notice how he says, my God, the son of God. He does not call him father here. Why? Why? Because he is speaking in the place of a cursed man. And there's a sense in which he has, I won't say ceased to become his father, but in taking our place, he is crying out to his God. He is clinging to the fact that he's my God. You're still my God, but I am literally dying in the place of, of all of you who would trust in me and all of you who will trust in me and all of you that I'm calling to myself and that I'm laying my life down for, okay? He's speaking as a man who's taken the rebellion our rebellion and he was truly he's fulfilling a scripture from psalm 22 this is a psalm of david who said my god my god why have you forsaken me david felt forsaken but was not by god jesus truly was the verb here in the hebrew is azav he was truly forsaken he was can i say this de so that you could be brought in and made a son do you understand this 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 is why we stand back and wonder when we hear a song in Macy's, like Nathaniel said, and just go, that's what it took. And you did it. it. Speaks to the monumental nature of my problem, the impasse that stands between me and God. It's not a political party, it's not a person, it's me. It's the fabric and the warp and woof of my being. And he became all that and crucified it and buried it and rose three days later to a new kind of life. And as surely as he died for your sins and paid the price, so we know that they were accepted by God as satisfactory because he rose, because he rose as proof that the God the Father accepted his payment for you, not for him, for you and for me and for me. But notice the last thing that he says on the cross is this. He says, it is finished, and then right after that. So the work's been, the the verb there in the Greek is, it is complete. There's nothing else you can add. I've paid it all. That's why I was raised from the dead by the Father. It's proof. Don't, don't insult God by trying to do a bunch of good stuff to get right with him. He's done it. Come to Christ. And what does he say after it is finished, it is complete? Last thing he says before he breathes his last. Father. Father. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Father. Once again, he has paid the price. It's done. And ah, oh, he can say truly because Jesus never uttered a false word you are my father. And what does that mean for you? Because he took your place. It means he's your father. He's your father now too. You're a daughter or a son. And through that reconciliation and only through that can we be reconciled to each other, to fathers, to mothers, to each other. Um, A bit of a denouement here. I know that was intense, but it is the glorious gospel and it is Packed into this good word. Let me just let me just relieve us all by a little bit of comic relief. It was quite serious to Zachariah, no doubt. He was trembling in his boots as he sat there and saw Gabriel. But to me, let's just sort of ramp down to the close with this. It is a bit humorous because we know it all's well that ends well. It's a bit of a comedy here. Um, in verse 18, Zechariah says, How he he gets this download. God's been silent for 400 years. Guess what? God's heard your prayer for the son and he's gonna restore Israel. Woohoo! It's this amazing word. And what does Zachariah do? What I would do? What any of us would probably do? He questions it. The very thing he's been asking for, all of a sudden he gets it. You ever done that? And then you go, hang on. I mean, I've done that so many times. And he says, How will I know this is gonna happen? He's doubting, he's doubting God. I'm old, he spells it out for Gabriel. Because see, Gabriel, it doesn't work like that, you know. And Gabriel doesn't countenance it for a second. It's sort of like at the end of Job when God takes Job to the woodshed for three chapters. You want to quake in your boots and, and get right-sized, go look at the stars and go read Job 38 through 41. I mean, God just says, Where were you? I mean, he doesn't lose his temper like I just did, but where were you when I was hanging the stars in? deep space. Hmm? And Job just says at the end, he's like, I shut my mouth. And that's wisdom. Um, But literally, that's what Gabriel does to Zachariah here. He goes, I am Gabriel. That's his answer. He didn't go, well, that's a great question. Here's how it's going to happen. He doesn't say, he goes, I am Gabriel. And this is my parentheses. You know, the one who was sent by God Hundred centuries ago in Babylon to give a word to Daniel, who was praying night and day and fasting for a word for God's people for the restoration of Israel. Yeah, I came to him. Yeah, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven before any of you existed. Yeah, that's right. I sang for joy when the morning stars were hung in deep space by God. Yeah, I saw that. And now I'm standing here and you're asking me this question. Guess what? Here's your answer you're going mute. So literally the humor in it is, actually, it is an answer. He's like, I'm not giving you an answer. I'm Gabriel. It's going to happen. God's word will always be accomplished. Now, I'll give you an answer. You can't talk anymore. And that is an answer. Because what? He's, he, can't, he literally comes out and he's like, I mean, he cannot say anything to the people waiting outside, waiting for him to finish. And he's taking a long time. And they're like, what's going on? And so they, make, they figure it out. He's, he's had a vision of some sort, but he can't express it. And the minute he cannot talk, it's a sign that this actually was something supernatural word. The minute he names the child John, but he writes it on a tablet when they ask him, what's your name? It's got to be a family name, Zachariah 2.0, something like that. No, no, it's John. They're all like, John isn't a family name, it's John. He obeys God's word. That moment, his mouth is opened. Again, it's a sign, it's a confirmation that this dude is coming, This stuff that was spoken of him in Malachi 4, it's going to happen. He comes from a priestly family from Jerusalem. His parents were blameless. God hasn't spoken for 400 years. You know how much he's riding on this dude? It says, the next passage says, all the community was in a a hub. It was in an uproar, okay? His whole life, they're like, man, this word was given to Zechariah, and then he was born, and then Zechariah's mouth was open. He is a harbinger of God is with us. He's a harbinger of this great thing. And then later in his ministry, maybe he is the Messiah, okay? So he's a son of priests from the priestly class. Parents that were highly respected have him him laid in life. He's the fulfillment of something given four centuries earlier. And what does he do? He is simply a way maker, an arrow, a pointer. He could have easily taken the glory that jesus alone deserves but he didn't because jesus comes along it seems like he he is he's he is born out of wedlock not illegitimately though because mary was betrothed to joseph we'll get more into this at the announcement of jesus birth next week but mary was betrothed to joseph but joseph was not jesus father she had him through the spirit of the living god okay and so but it it looked to everyone else probably everyone except for mary and maybe joseph joseph was just hanging on probably by faith thought this kid's a bastard this kid's born out of wedlock and they were pharisees later on in his ministry would actually say, say things like that that intimated that that's what they thought we weren't born in sin implication you were things small villages back then people knew It's probably the reason that Joseph took Mary to go be with him in Bethlehem for the census, because if he had left her there, she could have been stoned, possibly, because it seemed like she she had had sex with another man while while engaged to Joseph, okay? Um, And so he grew up in the hills in Nazareth, Jesus did, it's a hillbilly country. No, no offense, I love myself from West Virginia, but it's basically like he was from the sticks from West Virginia, okay? People thought he was born out of wedlock. He was born poor in a feed trough. He was not born of the priestly class. It would have been very easy with all the attention for John to basically say, hey, the point of my life is spotlight, to get the spotlight on me. Quite the opposite. His whole raison d'etre, his whole reason for being is this, arrow. Behold, the Lamb of God. I'm pointing you to him. He's the one who's going to bring reconciliation. He's going to do it. He must increase, John 3, 30. I must decrease. Would that that could, would that we could know, not politics, not another relationship, but that is our reason for being to be waymakers for Messiah, to lead people to Jesus, not to be like, hey, look at me. I can handle all of your praise and acclaim. Not even close. But let me show you this guy that has done everything necessary for you to be reconciled, restored, fulfilled, deeply satisfied. You will know the reason for your being. Let me introduce you to him. His name is Yeshua HaMashiach. His name is Jesus. Can we be that kind of people? Just windows, windows, People look at you and they see Jesus, not doors, arrows, waymakers, forerunners. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. It is without compare. It leads us to Jesus. He is your word. We love you. We bless you. Thank you for John. Make us like him. Arrows to Jesus in everything we do. Even, even in our sin, as we repent and say, hey, it ain't about being perfect. He was to be quick to repent, to be quick to run to you. And in that, in our repentance, would people see Jesus. Thank you for Advent. Amen.